0: Today we come to the end of the book of Joshua. And it ends fittingly with another service of covenant renewal. This one at Shechem. Shechem is Abraham's place. Abraham first built an altar here in the land and God first promised Abraham the land at Shechem. So this is a fitting place to close the narrative we saw previously way back in the book in chapter 8 that Israel renewed the covenant they had with the Lord after the defeat at Ai. Here they renew it after all the promises are fulfilled, the land is subdued, and all inheritances are parceled out. We'll make three points. History, choice, and warning. History, choice, And warning. So, first the history. And and here we mean the history of God's grace, His long faithfulness, and His protection, His power, and His deliverance, which brings Israel to where she stands in this text. And they're assembled here, notice, not before Joshua. But before God, the text says, even as when we assemble here, we assemble before the face of God to celebrate his fidelity, to renew our covenant with him in Jesus Christ. That is, as we've said before, that is what public worship is. What is this? It's not simply praise or teaching or outreach or even some combination of those things. It's renewal in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And that's what Israel's assembled to do. And they start with this history, and the history rehearsed here is long. It goes from verse 2 to verse 13. It's a prophetic history in that It is the word of the Lord through Joshua. Joshua says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And he begins all the way back with the fathers, the patriarchs. We're told that Israel's ancestors, including Abraham's father, Terah, his brother Nahor, they lived beyond the river. That's the Euphrates in northern Iraq. What's today? Northern Iraq. And they worshipped other gods so the point here is clear Abraham and his family were idolaters and so this is at the outset a picture of amazing free sovereign grace we tend to think Abraham must have been a great guy he must have come from a great family God must have seen something very special in Abraham. Surely he was brought up the right way. He had good parents. And he was prepared for God's call on his life. But this is sentimental nonsense. He and his family are swimming in a sea of polytheistic pagan worship. Idols worship. And so the choice at the beginning of the narrative of Abraham himself, lies solely in the freedom of grace, of God's glorious grace, even as it does in his choice of you and me. Even some Jewish minds, Jewish thinkers, had a hard time with this. And there's a later Jewish writing known as the Book of Jubilees. And it pictures Abraham, a young Abraham, at age 14, Breaking away from his family's idols. And exhorting his father to worship the true God. Teenagers always can teach their father something. (laughs) And eventually he goes out and he burns the whole house of idols in the town down. A typical 14-year-old (laughs) know-it-all. This in the book of Jubilees. Because, after all, Abraham must have been a righteous child. But there's none of this in Scripture. None of it. The exact opposite. Man is a worshiping creature and there are only two kinds of people. Those who worship idols and those who worship the living and true God. That's it. Those are the only kinds of human beings we have. And so the text says that God in His sovereignty took Him. Took Him and gave Him the land and descendants, the sheer existence of Israel. The miracle of the Jews is a most eloquent sign of the mighty saving grace of God. This is a people that shouldn't exist. And the text goes on, after 25 years, God gave him, the text says, Isaac. And after Isaac, and this is another 20-year gap, he gives Jacob and Esau. And so in this history, we see something. God works slowly, way too slow for us. His faithful purposes ripen on his own timetable. And his time and we're impatient with this timetable because his timetable is multi generational. And so we lose sight of this. And and when we lose sight of it, we lose heart and we lose hope. We lose sight of what the Lord has done because we don't take the long view. We think we're taking the long view if we go back a decade or so and out a decade or so. And maybe as wide as our friends and family and acquaintances. That's not the long view. One of the things I loved about the hymn we just sang, the hymn of preparation, is it sets the eternality of God against the fleeting, vaporous existence of all the busy tribes of flesh and blood. And so that moves us toward this longer view. The long view here doesn't start with us, it doesn't even start with our grandparents. It starts with Abraham. He is our father. People often say, well, my 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 descendant, you know, my ancestors were from Ireland, or my ancestors were this or my ancestors were that, but you should say, my ancestors were idol worshippers on the other side of the, top, the Euphrates River. And the fact that none of us say that, that none of, us, none of us even instinctively feel that, indicates how narrow our perspectives are and how cut off from this history is. This is why when we see a historical passage in the Bible, a real long story, we flip to the next chapter. You know, let's get to me. Let's get to me because I'm important. So we have to not demand too much too soon. We have to be patient. We have to trust. Part of the reason these kinds of texts are here is to say, look, it's an established fact that God is faithful. He's demonstrated it. It, but he's demonstrated in a long, patient history with this people. So don't evaluate it by what your eyes can see in your own short, vaporizing lifetime. right? We, we get upset now because we can't surf the web on an airplane right? that's going 500 miles in the air at 30,000 feet. Our whole sense of time And thus our gratitude are eroded. And so gratitude for the grace of God means celebrating this history. And and the need to stretch out our perspectives, it comes into view next. The text says, I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. But Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. It's one of those verses you'd easily skip over. Or slide over anyway. But what it is, it's a really, it's a piece of realism, unflinching realism. Esau, whose line does not bear the promise, gets an inheritance in Sierra. But Jacob, the chosen line, goes down into Egypt, landless, and into 400 years of dark bondage and slavery. This is a really strange history. I mean, have you noticed that? Like the Old Testament, the history of the Jews is a strange history. And it's a strange and mysterious providence that takes, the, takes Esau's line and says, Here, Esau, you take this land. My people, the chosen ones, I'm going to send them into 400 years of bondage in Egypt. There's a refreshing candor here. The people of God suffer while Esau's descendants settle into their homes. Have barbecues in the backyard and the like. And so the text says, look, darkness and doubt and despair are part of the story. They're not distractions from the story. They're not deflections from the story. They are remarkably a part of the story of God's free grace. And if we don't grasp that, we're always going to treat darkness and doubt and despair as some alien invaders in our lives. I mean, how could the drawing near of the holy God in love and truth to idolatrous people, to forge a people for himself, how could that not entail harrowing suffering? Right, that's basically what Israel's history is. Yes, it's full of wonderful victories and decisions. But if you look at the whole history from beginning to end, it is a history of being pounded on the anvil of God's word and continually shattering themselves on it. These are the chosen people. It's not as if God comes to us to give us a little religion or a little inspiration or a little daily bread. He comes to us to remake us. And he comes to to Israel to remake the world. And that means there's a lot of darkness in the process. Of course, it's not just suffering. We don't want to overstate this. But swaths of it are. I like the way Hebrews 11 speaks of this. It says, "Some, Some conquered kingdoms. Some shut the mouths of lions and put armies to flight. Referring to Israel's history. But others, they were sawn in two. Tradition has it the prophet Isaiah was killed that way. They were sawn in two. They were stoned. And they went about in abject poverty. So nothing gets whited out of the story. Remember the narrative of the resurrection in Matthew's Gospel. There's the risen Christ standing before the disciples. And Matthew tells us with brutal honesty, but some doubted. You know, you can trust a God who tells the story of His own people this way. It's one of the things I love about Scripture. It leaves nothing out. God's, you know, there's no um, kind of saintly gloss over the thing. God says, I chose this people like everyone else they're really bad so 400 years in Egypt think of that more time than has elapsed in the United States from the colonial era to now 400 years no sign of God no sign from God no revelation of God I mean you need the long-term perspective So we hear in verse 8, then I sent Moses and Aaron. Finally, at last, you get this deliverance out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, a path through the sea. And the Lord brings the suffering people out. Then, in verse 7, you lived in the wilderness a long time. So you get 40 years more there. But God does show His power. He delivers His people. And the power is followed by provision. To a rebellious people in the wilderness. But there's a whole generation that's lost in the wilderness. And then they come to the Jordan in the text, the east side of the Jordan. He protects them from the cursing of Balaam because the promise to Abraham. And remember, they're at Shechem. They're at Abraham's place, if you will. The promise to Abraham is, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so this God will and does build His church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The church is continually rising from the ashes, just reappearing out of the scorched earth. Because the the dynamic by which God does this with us as individuals and with the church as a whole is death and resurrection. He brings them into the land finally here, verse 11. Reminds them that they didn't conquer by their own sword. That they, got, they, they come into the, to Canaan, they get a land for which they didn't toil, and houses they didn't build, vineyards and olive groves they didn't plant. It's a divine wealth redistribution plan. You get the wealth of the Canaanites. So in free grace, God provides them and us with our daily bread, with all our earthly goods. And so, from idolatry in northern Mesopotamia to settlement in the promised land, this whole history is the history of God's election, His preservation, His power, and His provision. And that brings us to the second point. And that's the choice. Verse 14, Joshua tells them, Fear the Lord. Now, fear the Lord. Because of this history, now, fear the Lord. Serve him with all faithfulness. It's the only rational, reasonable thing to do in view of God's mercy. Any other response, Joshua implies, from creatures would be irrational. And so we fear and we serve God because we're gripped by his glorious goodness, by his grace And that goodness and grace is seen in the history we just rehearsed. If Israel's history doesn't move us, and it rarely does, but if it doesn't, then we are not going to fear and serve God aright. Do you understand that? Because Joshua rehearses the history, and then he says, now fear the Lord your God. I mean, they lived right on the cusp of the history. It's just a a couple generations old. You know, some of the history is close to them, much closer to them than it is to us. We live far off. And Joshua tells them, look, I'm going to rehearse this history, and it's going to be the ground of your fear and your service of God. Because of this history, fear God and serve Him. And so again, I think we said something like this last week, but a question to ask ourselves is, when is the last time we started talking about the grace of God, recounting God's deeds, and started with the call of Abraham, right? Or the conquest in the land. So this is your Ancestry.com. And since God has pledged Himself uniquely to his people the service has to be exclusive you can see that in verse 14 the second half throw away the gods of your ancestors the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and get this the gods worshiped also in Egypt what was Israel doing for the 400 years in Egypt when they were in slavery well for one thing they were worshiping the Egyptian gods Like Abraham, they were idolaters, as we all are by nature. You know, John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a factory of idols. It's a manufacturing line of idols that's never exported overseas. The human heart's a factory of idols. So even deliverance out of Egypt rests solely on God's promise to Abraham. It has nothing to do with virtue. Human beings, we can only worship one master rightly. It's all we can do. And so the first response is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before my face. And then Joshua says something curious. He says, but, but, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then famously, the famous verse, Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's a curious way to put it, but he's not saying that the choices are equal. He just charged them, serve the Lord alone. His point is this. If one refuses to choose the Lord, the one who has chosen us, one does not worship nothing. Everybody has got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan put it. The only question is, whose bondservants or slaves will we be? G.K. Chesterton said, When men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. In fact, they will believe in anything. And if they don't choose the Lord, the text says you're going to inevitably serve the gods of your ancestors. Or, Joshua says, the gods of the land. Those are the two choices. You can serve the gods Abraham and your distant ancestors served beyond the river, or you can serve these Canaanite gods who are here. But if you don't serve the Lord, you're not going to have no gods. Conservative idolaters like the old gods. You know, the conservatives, the Republicans in Canaan are like, well, look, we're not going to serve the Lord, but we're not going to serve these newfangled gods We're going to serve the old, across the uh, Euphrates gods, the gods that have made this country great. Right, right, they like the flag, the country, the American dream, financial security, their own work ethic. They turn those things into idols. Liberals, they like the new gods that are stalking the land. Sexual freedom, gender self-identity, equality, wealth distribution, But everybody who is not worshiping the Lord is nevertheless worshiping gods, either old gods or new gods, gods of the ancestors or gods that are currently walking around in the land. This is always the case. But Joshua makes clear his choice. And according to the the logic of the covenant, he speaks for his whole family. He says, as for me and for my household. We're not going to worship the old gods or the new gods. We worship the Lord. And fathers would do well to follow his example and direct the worship of their households. For each house is a church in miniature. And so after the history comes the choice. Exclusive loyalty to the Lord or idolatry. There is no, we note this, third option here. Think of it this way. There's a a story about a hen and a hog. And they both heard a sermon entitled, How to Help the Poor. And upon reflection, the hen told the hog that the two of them could help the poor by providing them with a ham and eggs breakfast. Well, the hog, of course, was horrified. He said this. He said, "From you, that requires only a contribution. From me, it's a total commitment. So God wants us to go whole hog. in, in the commitment, that's as corny as I can get." Um, he wants us to go whole hog in response to His grace. So the third point here, then, is the warning. That's the choice. There's the warning. The people answer emphatically, starting in verse 16. The people are very confident. They they don't really follow the contours of the history well enough, I think. But they answer emphatically that they're going to follow Joshua's lead. They're not going to forsake the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt into the land. We, too, they say, will serve the Lord. And then Joshua says one of the strangest things in all of Scripture. This really is very strange. If he were a modern evangelist, his preaching has just brought the whole crowd, the whole nation, to make a public vigorous expression of profession in Jesus Christ. We too will serve the Lord. He's our God. He brought us up from Egypt. A great success. Joshua can put this in his next ministry newsletter. Instead, he responds with, you are not able to serve the Lord. Can you imagine the confusion in this crowd at this point? Like, what was the point of the sermon till this point? I'm sure some of you have walked away asking yourself that question. <laughs> you just called us for, to exclusive commitment. We agreed, and then you said, Nah, you're not able to do it. Can't do it. That's exactly the point. This is the real scandal in this text. Please hear this. Even after the long history, the rehearsal of God's grace, even on the basis of that grace, Joshua looks at them and says, you cannot keep the covenant. The call to human fidelity to God is not humanly possible. And often, you know, we perjure ourselves here. Like we sing the hymn "I Surrender All," you know. (laughs) We we sing. We should turn those hymns into prayers, (laughs) petitions. Um, We don't want to perjure ourselves. The call to human fidelity to God is humanly impossible, and the reason is that the Lord is a holy and jealous God. This sermon here from Joshua is taking a strange twist. Like any faithful husband, the Lord is not taking other brides. He chose Israel alone. And he's not going to take kindly to his bride's pursuit of other husbands. And so jealousy in this sense is just holy covenant love. That's all it is. Of course, there's a human jealousy which can be peevish. You're jealous of someone at work. You're jealous because this person's advanced. But here it's just love. Jealousy can be petty, But jealousy is the necessary reaction if a holy relationship is intruded upon by an outsider. And so when Israel rebels, and we know they did, they take other gods, they forsake the Lord, they're going to bring His holy judgment on them. And they're going to be evicted from the land. But the people say, no, we will serve the Lord. And in verse 22, Joshua says, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And the people agree, yes, we're witnesses. And they seal a public oath, they set up stones. And we know what happened. The whole nation, north and south, eventually goes into exile for persistent idolatry. The story of Israel, the sequel to the book of Joshua, is to put it mildly, it ends very badly. And so it turns out, that the grace which God has shown them to this point, glorious as it is, is not enough to secure their obedience and their inheritance in the land. That's why this history is important. Because it doesn't just stop. In other words, it's not a history of anecdotes for our edification. It's a moving, organic history. And at this point, God has not revealed himself in fullness. Joshua dies, and neither he nor any other future leader or commander, nor the nation itself can uphold the covenant. And so this text, like the whole Old Testament, bends us forward, twists our neck forward. And to to say this narrative, this history of God's grace, is not going to stop with the settlement of Canaan. But it presses on through the prophets and through the exile and through the return and on to the appearance of the greater Joshua, the one true Israelite, Jesus Christ. That's the importance of, but you are not able to serve the Lord. And In one sense, Israel's whole whole history is a millennia-long public exhibition of humankind's inability to serve the Lord. It's like a laboratory where God is saying to us, you human beings are really slow. So I'm going to teach this. It's going to take 3,000 years. Let's see if you can get it. Here's the lesson. You are not able to serve the Lord. Even in the teeth of His goodness and grace and bounty and deliverance and provision. Now, this, of course, does not mean that Israel's worse than any other people. That would be a horrific conclusion to draw. In one sense, they, they are a magnifying glass of what we all are. So, the one Israelite, the greater Joshua comes. Hebrews chapter 11 says of these Old Testament saints, they all died in faith without receiving what was promised. But God has prepared something better for us. We're at a better place in the story. And that better thing, that even more glorious thing, is the new covenant that has come in Jesus. What's important here, I think, is in Jesus, when you look at Jesus, we see the fullness, not just of God's grace to man. Of course we see that. But we see the perfection in him of man's covenant-keeping obedience to God. It's often said, and I think rightly, that Jesus is the word of God to man and he's the answering word of man back to God. And he, finally, God in the flesh, will do what we're unable to do, namely serve the Lord with utter fidelity and forsake all the other gods, the old ones and the new ones. So the gospel is precisely this. This is the gospel in this text. That the holy and jealous God in Jesus Christ will uphold the covenant both from His side and from your side. That's the gospel of the book of Joshua. That's why you are unable to serve the Lord. And because you, of that inability, God comes and says, I'll stand on your side. I'll bear your curses. I'll bear your exile. I'll render your obedience. I will uphold the covenant for you in your place, from your side, within your human nature. And until that is done, Israel's history will be one of failure. So this is the glory of the gospel. The greater Joshua has come, he will have A holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy land, enjoying a holy rest. But the book of Hebrews also tells us Joshua failed to give them rest. The greater Joshua has come. So rejoice in this history. Choose Jesus who has already chosen you and obeyed for you. Serve him with your whole household. Wait patiently for the consummation. Amen. Amen.